It would be wonderful to be meeting together in person to join in worship and fellowship before our Lord. But the serious circumstances we face as a community and as a nation have intervened to change our normal routines. Instead of representing an interruption in our opportunity to gather together, we hope that this will actually expand the opportunities we have by providing many small groups that will meet in our homes during this time period. We are working to quickly arrange for leaders and hosts for these and to connect them with everyone who desires to join one. We also realize that for health reasons, there may be those of you who will feel uncomfortable in any group activity. We hope having access to our messages through these podcasts will keep you connected with us in spirit and truth. And if there are any needs you have that we can assist you with, please contact the church office by phone or email. 458-5556, secretary at cbcwilliamstown.org. Gatherings of people, such as our church body, all share some common characteristics. There are issues that serve to draw us together, and there are others that tend to drive us apart. Groups coalesce over a variety of goals, supporting political parties, working together to solve a community need, travel to exotic places, playing a sport, as well as religious communities. Unfortunately, perfect harmony is rarely achieved in any human organization. In fact, of course, it's never achieved. We live in a broken world, and we're all broken people who by nature would choose what's in our best interest over the interests of others. It takes something beyond ourselves to overcome the disruptive force that lies at the heart of who we are. If you've been with us at least occasionally over the last four to five months, you're aware that we've been studying God's Word and His work as He rescued a people from slavery in Egypt. This people, Israel, shared an identity based on a common ancestor who lived 400 years earlier in Canaan, a couple of hundred miles to the northeast. Their most obvious common characteristic by then was simply their work as slaves serving the rulers of Egypt. Gaining their freedom was just the beginning of a long process that would return them to their promised destination in the land of Canaan. Sharing a common ancestor in the remote past doesn't necessarily make for really close relationships. We all have hundreds, if not thousands, of second, third, and fourth cousins whom we know nothing about. The Israelites were at least 16 generations removed from a common ancestor. Sharing the burden of being slaves might provide some common cause, but it might equally divide them if rewards were granted by their overseers for exposing malcontents or plans to escape. Freedom won't immediately transform this enormous group of people into one big happy family working together for the common good of all. We began to see God's plans for this transformation last week when Greg Phelan spoke on Exodus 20. That passage tells how God apparently addressed the people Israel directly for the first and perhaps only time, introducing them to ten basic commandments that were to exemplify their way of life as his people, representing some of the core of the Old Testament law. This came as a bit of, sh of a shock for them. Upon hearing God speak and seeing physical displays of his power on the mountain, the people reacted by begging Moses to please deal with God by himself in private and relay God's word back to them. They feared for their lives if God should ever speak directly to them again. As Greg related, these laws were not given as a means by which the people of Israel could earn their status before God. He had already chosen them and set them apart as his people through no merit of their own. 
purely by his grace. If they were to grow into their roles as children of God, they needed to know what he was like and what pleased him. The law helped them to understand this. It provided a capsule summary of the kind of lifestyle that God desired for them. The people could judge their actions according to these words, quickly see where they were falling short, and begin to understand the changes they needed to make in order to fully enjoy the life they were called to as his chosen people, in order that their hearts might be aligned with what God wanted and not their own sinful desires. As we move on to consider Exodus 32 today, the initial results are not very promising. The people of Israel have been growing impatient as Moses had yet to return from meeting with God on the mountain. Suspecting something dire had befallen him, they demanded action, but it's what they demanded that's shocking in light of what they had just committed to only a few weeks in the past. This is a story that reminds us of how fickle our human natures really are and how easily we forget earlier resolutions and commitments when circumstances change unexpectedly. Lord, guide us and direct us as we study this passage before us. Show us those actions and attitudes we need to avoid and the ways by which our lives can bring your name the honor it rightly deserves. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Before we delve into chapter 32, let me quickly recount some of what's transpired between last week's passage and today's. After the people begged Moses to deal with God in private for their safety, Moses went back up the mountain and received further specific instructions regarding a variety of civil and religious laws. He then returned to the camp and informed the people and their leaders what God had told him. In response, the people declared that all the words that the Lord has commanded we will do. Moses then wrote down in a book all the words he had just delivered to them. The next morning, he offered sacrifices and repeated all these commands to the people a second time. Once again, they committed to obey all that God commanded. Moses concluded this covenantal ceremony by sprinkling some of the blood from the sacrifice over the people, confirming the covenant the Lord had now made with them. God then commanded Moses to bring Aaron, his two sons, and the 70 elders of the people with him up on the mountain where the Lord dramatically appeared before them, and they shared a meal in his presence. One wonders what was going through their minds during this extraordinary experience. Presumably, after they returned to camp, God told Moses to go up the mountain once again where he would receive stones on which the law recently given would be written. Moses would spend the next 40 days on the mountain, receiving further instructions regarding the construction of a tabernacle where they are to worship the Lord, along with everything else associated with that worship. That brings us up to where today's passage begins. Picture yourself now as the nation of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. A few weeks earlier, you heard what you believed to be God speaking to you from the mountain with crashes of thunder and lightning and fire an experience that terrified you. In response to what you heard, you had covenanted with this God to follow all that he commanded you to do. You were so afraid of what you just experienced that you begged your leader, Moses, to deal with God in private and not relay his words to you, and then relay his words to you. And Moses has done just that. But after returning to the mountain that has since been shrouded in clouds, Nothing more has been heard of him for several weeks. Has Moses had an accident on the mountain? 
Worse yet, has he offended this awesome God in such a way that God has taken his life, just as you feared for your own? What are you to do if your leader doesn't return? Such care and concern for others is a noble attitude. In the connected world that we live in, we expect people to just be a few clicks away on our cell phones. But sometimes people don't want to be reached. Sometimes phones run out of charge. Sometimes they're left behind or left silenced by mistake. A loved one you expected home today hasn't shown up. You naturally get anxious and wonder what could have happened. What if they've had an accident or something worse has happened? There were no cell phones in Moses' day. There were probably many people among the Israelites who were sincerely worried for his safety. There may have been some who had such trust in the God they had come to know that they felt confident that Moses was safe in God's hands and would soon return. But from the way today's text is worded, it appears that there were quite a number of people whose view of Moses was less than kind and who would have been glad if he never returned. Their demands of Aaron give no hint of concern for Moses' safety. Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron's response leaves us to wonder what his feelings were as well. Isn't he concerned about his brother? He doesn't appear to question their demands at all, but responds by asking them to supply him with gold in the form of earrings with which to fashion an idol. As we consider this story, there are lessons we can learn from a number of the situations encountered here. The callous disregard of the Israelites for the covenant they had committed themselves to only weeks before, and their attitudes regarding Moses, speak of what is often the shallowness of people's understanding of God and the depth of their commitment to following him. It also speaks to the challenges that leaders deal with when serving God's people. On the one hand, leaders face pressure to conform to the will of the people or to be faithful to God's will. Alternatively, a choice must be made between doing what might be best for oneself or doing what's best for the people you serve. In addition, Jealousy is a likely undercurrent in all of this. People jealous of the privileges of their leaders, as well as leaders jealous of one another. In other words, their problems were a lot like ours today, and like the people living in Jesus' day, as the Gospels and Epistles plainly relate. We need to ask what led these people to act the way they did, and what do we need to do to avoid falling prey to the same errors of judgment. The initial reason on which they based their demands was the absence of their leader, Moses. He had probably been gone on the order of 30 days by this time, since he eventually returned after 40 days to find the situation out of control in the camp. The people's concerns might have been seen as genuine if they had just sought advice from their leaders about what they should be doing in Moses' absence. Since God had only recently revealed himself to Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders in a dramatic way, you would have thought that the first step would be for them to seek God's guidance and pray for Moses' safe return. But there's no hint of this in their approach. It smacks of impatience and a decided lack of concern for Moses' safety. In our previous studies, we've seen that these people have frequently been said to grumble about their conditions. This description is found 33 times in the books of Exodus and Numbers. 
With some two million people wandering around in the Sinai wilderness, it would be fair to say that they were not a bunch of happy campers. They most likely assumed that once they gained their freedom from Egypt by means of a series of miraculous plagues and the dividing of the sea, that God would lead them swiftly through the desert and into the promised land, driving out all before them. But that had not happened. It had been about four months now, and their progress had been painfully slow. Now God was imposing all sorts of rules and laws for the way they were to live. Who knew how many more laws Moses would return with from the mountain, if he returned at all? The form of worship they were probably most familiar with was that of their pagan overlords in Egypt who worshipped things like bulls and cats and birds. Their ancestor Joseph offered sacrifices when his family arrived in Egypt, but the next mention of sacrifices when God told Moses to ask Pharaoh to let the people go in order to sacrifice to him in the wilderness. It's not at all clear what worship practices had been passed down over the many generations separating them from their ancestor Joseph. The people had now heard God speak to them with their own ears and very clearly tell them not to make idols and not to worship any of the gods of the nations around them. But who was this God that had done these incredible things for them? Only Moses and possibly Aaron seemed to have any connection with him, and Moses may be lost to them now. They didn't want a bunch of regulations. They wanted some action. They were hardly any closer to the destination than when they left Egypt, and the Sinai wasn't exactly a pleasant place to be idling away their time. Moses, God, had done a pretty good job of getting them out of Egypt, but things had stalled now. They weren't so interested in serving a God as much as they wanted a God who served them. And isn't this really our basic human problem? A problem that stems from our desire to be in control. We'd rather decide for ourselves what we should be able to do and not be told what's best for us. We naively overlook our limited perspective and think we can actually do a better job directing our affairs than the one who created us. The Israelites were more intent on satisfying their hunger and thirst and getting beyond camping in the wilderness to real homes in the promised land than getting to know the God who would actually make all that possible. What is it that motivates us most? A career? A relationship with the right person? Monetary success? Being popular? Being top dog? God doesn't want anything else taking first place in our lives from him. Not because he wants to make us grovel before him, but because he wants us to have the most abundant lives possible. And he knows the best way for that to come about. Maybe the problem was Moses. Moses is described later in the book of Numbers as the meekest of men. Perhaps they felt they needed a more dynamic leader who would take charge and do something again with that staff of his and not just wait around until a cloud moved or something else strange happened. Whatever their final reasoning, they seemed to brush aside the commandment about idols that they had recently committed to obey and demanded that Aaron make them a god to lead them. Worshipping an invisible god that only Moses seemed to have access to apparently wasn't very satisfying. The word God that is used in these verses is a plural form, Elohim. It's form that was used to refer to the God of Abraham. However, when paired with a plural verb, as in this case, it usually referred to a pagan deity. The ball was now in Aaron's court. Aaron, Moses' brother, his mouthpiece, since Moses felt he wasn't a gifted speaker.
Aaron was one of the 73 people who had recently eaten a meal on the mountain in the presence of God's glory. Surely, his first reaction would be to restrain the people from committing such a grievous error in direct violation of one of the commands they had just received. If he feared taking action on his own, he could call a council of the other 72 leaders and, with their combined wisdom and authority, be able to put this ill-conceived plan to rest. But no. Aaron joins right in with the plot and calls for materials to be brought to fashion this idol. Now, if you're going to make an idol to represent a god you can't describe, it's logical to use a form you're familiar with. The bull was a figure by which important deities in both Egypt and Canaan were worshipped. The text implies Aaron fashioned it himself, although it may mean he arranged for it to be made by an artisan. In all likelihood, it was a wooden idol overlaid with gold leaf. This would later explain the way Moses disposed of it. Upon completion, Aaron presented it to the people, saying, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Perhaps Aaron managed to convince himself that it was all right to worship God by using this man-made image if they still recognized him as the God who had brought them out of Egypt. Would that really be so bad? The next day, he even arranged for sacrifices to be made before this idol and a great feast to be celebrated. How easily we allow other things to become idols in our own lives. As long as we still acknowledge God and attend worship services each week, or, or at least occasionally, we're more comfortable with that kind of God. A God who can be worshipped in a special place on certain days, but who leaves us alone the rest of the week. We also conveniently make excuses for allowing other things to consume much more of our time and attention. They may not be idols formed in the image of men or animals, but money, power, prestige, sex can easily preempt the worship that God rightly deserves in our lives. The celebration after Aaron's sacrifices was when things went from bad to worse and turned into something that is described as the people breaking loose to the derision of their enemies. Rather than mourning the potential loss of their leader and praying that God would restore him to them quickly, they indulged in revelry that made them a laughing stock in the view of their pagan enemies. In the meantime, back on the mountain, Moses is learning from the Lord about what has happened. God tells Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. When God was rescuing the Israelites from Egypt, he had called them my people. Now he refers to them as your people, this people, and describes them as a stiff-necked people. Was God placing some of the blame on Moses for a rescue plan that had gone bad? Was the people's corrupt behavior the fault of Moses' poor leadership? It wouldn't be difficult to envision Moses cringing at hearing those words from the Lord. When problems arise, those in leadership are often called to account. Corporate heads can roll when those beneath them make serious mistakes. Perhaps Moses may have thought, I've lingered too long on the mountain. I should have been down there to deal with this rebellion in person. Or how about shifting the blame? Why have you kept me up here so long when you knew what was brewing in the camp? There are always a variety of excuses we can use to place blame for any problems. I might be at fault. Those I'm responsible to might be. Or those I'm responsible for may be at fault. Moses 
didn't have to dwell on this very long, though, because God immediately made his intentions clear. It was the people that did this. Let me alone so I can consume the whole lot of them and make you the great nation I intended them to be. That's a relief. God's not blaming me. He even intends to make me the father of the nation he will now call his chosen people. Why, I'd be regarded right up there with our ancient forefathers themselves. We can have a fresh start, and I won't have to deal with this ungrateful rabble anymore. No, but wait, how would that work? How many generations would it take to raise up a people who could occupy the land we've been promised? I would never even get to see this happen. And how foolish would it make this whole enterprise of God's rescuing his people appear if he just destroyed them in the wilderness a few months later? Why wouldn't God have just started with me and my wife in the first place and left my countrymen in slavery instead of making a wreck of all of Egypt in the process? But Moses doesn't succumb to guilt despair over the disaster awaiting him below, nor does he readily accept the offer of becoming the father of a new nation and all the privileges that might go with it. Instead, he clings to the faint hope offered in the words, let me alone. No, Lord, I won't let you alone to do this. They may be a stiff-necked people, but they're your people. You delivered them. You swore to multiply them, and you promised them a land of their very own. Moses fully understood what God meant about this being a stiff-necked people, but destroying them now was not the right answer. Stiff-necked in this connotation carries the meaning of being stubborn or obstinate. An analogy would be an ox or a donkey which was resisting being led by its master, straining its neck back against the bridle. If they were going to act like they were God-chosen people and not some wild belligerent mob, They would need more breaking in to God's ways than breaking loose in the world's ways. In response to Moses, God relented from the punishment they justly deserved. The word relented here commonly means move to pity or to have compassion. It's not that God is as fickle as the people who broke his covenant almost as soon as they had committed to it. The behavior of the people deserved severe punishment under the law. But on that basis, we would all be a lost cause, since we've all broken God's commandments in many ways. God, in his compassion, chose not to destroy the whole nation, but many would eventually be punished, presumably those most involved in leading them to break the covenant. Moses may have been pleading for God's mercy on his people earlier, but when he reached the camp and saw and heard the extent of their behavior, he was furious. He now understood more of the anger that the Lord had expressed earlier regarding their actions. His first action was to smash the tablets written by the hand of God on the mountain. The people had broken their covenant with God by their actions, and breaking the tablets was now symbolic of this. Moses then took the golden calf and burned it, probably reducing the underlying wooden idol to ashes. He didn't stop there but ground the remaining gold to a powder scattered in the mountain stream that was their water supply and made the people drink it. Having dealt with the idol, he then turned to his brother Aaron. What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron, as the leader in charge, 
should have known better than to allow such disobedience. Moses could only assume that he was coerced into doing this, but Aaron offered no such defense. Just, you know the people, they're set on evil. Aaron was right to say this, but it was no excuse for his own actions. It was a sad commentary in light of what they had recently committed to do. But it's all too true about each of us. Apart from the work of Christ in us, we are all sinners. And Jesus described what our hearts are like in that condition. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. We shouldn't be surprised at all at what actions the human heart is capable of committing when it's bent on following its own desires and not God. It's what Aaron adds next in his explanation that is almost laughable. So I said to them, let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. It sounds as if Aaron was claiming that God had worked another miracle like the turning of Moses' staff into a serpent in order for this calf to be made. Who did Aaron take for the fool, though? Certainly not his brother, or worse yet, the God he claimed to worship. This didn't even deserve a reaction from Moses, who was more concerned with the wild affair that had overtaken the camp. If they had reverted to some form of their neighbor's pagan worship, it could certainly have involved drunkenness and even sexual acts, adding to the guilt of the people. Moses took a position at the main gate where judgment was traditionally rendered and called out, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Little did those know who responded what he was about to ask them to do. Serious problems called for decisive action, and Moses called on those who had come forward to strap on their swords and kill those involved in this behavior. The ones who responded were many members of his own clan, the Levites. In recognition, he blessed them and declared that this, in effect, was their ordination into the Lord's service. 3,000 men that died that day as a result of disobeying God's clear commands. The next day, Moses warned the people of the seriousness of what they had done and went back up the mountain to seek their forgiveness, even offering to have their sin laid to his own account. A second account of this event in Deuteronomy 9 mentions that Moses specifically prayed for Aaron's life as well, since he led them in making and worshiping the idol. God may have relented from immediately destroying the whole nation, but he made no promise of blanket forgiveness now. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you, Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. It was an ominous warning, and a plague soon followed with further loss of life because of their idolatry. It was only by God's grace that the entire nation served this incident, survived this incident. God couldn't accept Moses' offer to credit his people's sins to, their, to his account, for he was a sinner himself. It's only by God's grace that we too can be reconciled to him and be adopted as his spiritual children. It took the sacrifice of a perfect life to make it possible for our sins to be wiped away, the sacrifice of God's own son. God's compassion is extended to all of us through the work of Jesus Christ in dying on the cross. Eventually, we learned that none of the generation of adults that left Egypt actually made it to the promised land 
except two of its faithful leaders, Joshua and Caleb. It took 40 long years to mold this people into fit condition to enter and occupy the land God had set aside for them. So let's consider the lessons we've learned from the behavior of the Israelites and their leaders in this passage. First, while they were quite justly in awe of God's power and never wanted to experience his direct presence again after the giving of the Ten Commandments, they seemed to think it was safe to have Moses interceding for them as a buffer between them and God. They were happy to have God at their disposal when they needed him, but didn't want to be responsible to him otherwise. Beat our enemies into submission, run rescue operations when necessary, provide food and water miraculously, but leave us alone to live the way we want to otherwise. And by the way, it would be nice to have some variety in the food you provide. Manna gets old quickly. Does that have a familiar ring to it? How do we treat God ourselves? Are we more than happy to have him get us out of trouble and provide for our needs in surprising ways? But do we really need to take this discipleship stuff seriously? Can't he just be satisfied with regular church attendance and maybe a modest tithe? Does he really want to change who I am down deep inside to give me a real change of heart? Jesus' answer would be an unequivocal yes. Jesus declared, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is dearest to our hearts can't be isolated from who we are as a person. It will come through clearly in what we value and the actions we take. The Israelites said that they would follow God, but it was only lip service. Just as Jesus quoted from the prophet Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We each need to keep careful watch on our hearts and make certain our lips aren't playing cover-up for what is really present in them. A second lesson, or pair of lessons, concerns how we interact with those in leadership and how leaders view those they serve. Between the Israelites' hearts, because the Israelites' hearts were focused on what benefited them more than on becoming the people God wanted them to be, their attitude toward Moses and probably the other leaders as well was critical by nature. Their leadership was tolerated if they stood to benefit by their actions, but criticism and grumbling were more often their response. Personal issues that are dear to our hearts can blind us both to what God wants us to become as his people and what the best ways are by which we can serve him and share the gospel with those around us. We all need to keep our focus on that same goal, becoming more like Jesus Christ. While that involves change and changes, painful at times, it comes with the best of promises. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Unlike the people in today's passage, let's choose to serve and encourage one another and reject any critical and grumbling attitudes that can weaken our effectiveness in the Lord's service. The other side of this coin is where leaders are too concerned about pleasing the congregation, or for that matter, any of us are more concerned with pleasing our peers than with faithfully living in accordance with God's word. Aaron's toleration of breaking one of the commandments may have been seen as a minor accommodation to the will of the people, but breaking even one commandment served to undermine their respect for all of God's commandments. Jesus summarized the law by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. When we choose to ignore certain things that God calls us to do, it's not as if we are now in the 90th percentile of being a good disciple. It means we're not following him carefully, and we are in danger of losing our way. Alternatively, it's as if we just walled off a chunk of our heart or mind and declared that that's my space, Lord, and you're not allowed there. The question for each of us to decide is what would we rather be known as, wholehearted or half-hearted disciples? One final lesson we might take from this passage concerns the damaging effects that jealousy can wreak on both our relationships with one another and with God himself. While it may not be directly obvious in this passage, accounts in others of the books of Moses indicate that there were undercurrents of jealousy among the leadership, those who felt that it wasn't fair for Moses to have the last say in leadership. For example, Aaron and Miriam later confronted Moses publicly, saying, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? In another case, Korah and 250 chiefs of the people rebelled against Moses and Aaron's leadership, declaring, Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Each of these were cases where resentment and jealousy of Moses' special leadership role broke out in the open. However, with feelings like this simmering among the leadership and the people themselves, it's easy to understand how it could quickly lead to the situation we encounter today with a golden calf. Jealousy distracts us from what our responsibilities should be and breeds resentment for the roles we see others playing. We're left guilty of making the erroneous judgments Jesus spoke about when he said, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? It's far better to put jealousies aside and follow Paul's advice to Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Had this been the approach that Israel and its leaders had taken in Moses' absence, a lot of grief could have been avoided. We can avoid a lot of grief in our spiritual lives as well if we're honest with the Lord about the real condition of our hearts. If we take to heart his instructions to deny ourselves and become wholehearted lovers of God, and if we follow his example of selfless service to one another. If you haven't yet started on that road to being a disciple of Christ, take the time now to accept the compassion that God offers to each of us. Admit that you're broken and lost and in need of his saving grace. Invite Jesus Christ into your life as Lord and Savior and begin to leave yourself behind and follow him into the abundant life he offers each of us. Lord, be near to each of us in these troubled and uncertain times. Draw us closer to you and to each other, even as we deal with unforeseen disruptions in our normal way of life. Help us to support one another in whatever ways are necessary in the weeks and months ahead. We ask for your help for all involved in dealing with the consequences of this serious viral pandemic. Protect them and give them both the wisdom and the means they need to care for those suffering the most from it. Help those in our government to put the bitterness and strife of the past few years behind them and work together to bring about the best approach for our country to deal with this crisis. Thank you that you only are our rock and our salvation, our fortress 
we will not be shaken. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.